0: Welcome to LSEIQ, a podcast from the London School of Economics and Political Science, where we ask leading social scientists and other experts to answer an intelligent question about economics, politics or society. Harvey Weinstein, hashtag Me Too, the gender pay gap, the president's club dinner, the Oxfam sexual exploitation scandal. Gender politics has dominated the news over the past year. It has been pivotal in highlighting the obstacles that women still encounter in both their personal and professional lives. But will this new focus truly bring about change for women, or is it just another false start? In this episode of LSEIQ, Joanna Bell asks, are we seeing a new gender equality revolution?
1: Okay, let's take a very quick look at the top 100 companies in the London Stock Exchange in 2016. Top 100 companies. Uh, How many women running them? Seven. OK, seven, is all right, I suppose, until you realise that 17 are run by men called John. <laughs> there are more men called John running FTSE 100 companies than there are women. There are 14 run by men called Dave... I'm sure Dave and John doing a bang-up job. Okay. (laughs) Why does it matter? Well, it's that pesky business of the gender pay gap. Okay. Nowhere in the world do women earn the same as men, and that is never going to change unless we have more women at the top in the boardroom. With plenty of laws, uh, the Equal Pay Act in Britain was passed in 1975. Nevertheless, there are still many, many women who from early November until the end of the year by comparison to their male colleagues are effectively working for free. Uh, In fact, the World Economic Forum estimates that women will finally get equal pay in 21.33! (laughs) Yay! (laughs) That's a terrible figure! And here's the thing. The day before I came out to give my talk, the World Economic Forum revised it. So that's good, right? Because that's a terrible 2133. Do you know what they revised it to? 2186. (laughs) Yeah, another 53 years, okay? We are not going to get equal pay in my grandchildren's grandchildren's lives under the current system, and I have waited long enough. I've waited long enough in my own business. Uh, in 2016, I became the very first woman on British television to host a prime time panel show. Isn't that great? It's wonderful! I'm thrilled. But 2016—the <laughs> first television's been around for 80 years. <laughs> Okay, so maybe television's not so important, but it's kind of symptomatic, isn't it? That was the broadcaster,
2: writer and comedian Sandy Toxfig giving a TED Talk in 2016 as she told the story of how she helped start a new political party in Britain, the Women's Equality Party, with the express purpose of campaigning for gender equality. Since then, issues of gender, feminism and sexual politics have taken centre stage around the world, Fueled by the hashtag MeToo movement on social media. Global consciousness was well and truly raised after millions of women shared their stories of sexual violence and harassment following revelations about the disgraced film producer Harvey Weinstein. The Time's Up movement followed with a focus on policy change and practical support. Its co-founder, Reese Witherspoon, reported recently that it raised $20 million in 10 days and has so far helped... 1,500 women with harassment suits against their employers. I asked Professor Beverly Skeggs, a leading feminist sociologist and academic director of the Atlantic Fellows Programme at LSE's International Inequalities Institute, why she thinks hashtag MeToo has had such an impact.
3: Because of the sheer scale of it, um, and, I mean, almost paradoxically, The women who've been involved are irresistible to tabloid journalism and mainstream media, so they do want to cover and pay attention to these cases because they are kind of almost tabloid-type cases, which is both horrible but actually enables the campaign to get a presence, a global presence. So I think it's the global scale. I also think it's the fact that it's so many different um, industries, you know, from Hollywood, media, charities, education, everything, really. Everything, yeah. you know, everywhere we work, Absolutely. every workplace we inhabit. It's and like, yeah, it's exposed it.
2: I mean, you, you've you studied um, inequality in terms of social media and traditional media. Do you think obviously the social media
3: is a big angle as well? Yeah, I think. Social media is um, absolutely key to this. Again, it's never straightforward for both good and bad reasons. So as we saw with the Caroline Criado Perez case, it's like it has very horrific social media effects.
2: Caroline Criado Perez is the feminist activist and writer who successfully campaigned to have Jane Austen feature on £10 notes and for a statue of the suffragette Millicent Fawcett in Parliament Square. These campaigns prompted an avalanche of misogynistic abuse on Twitter, including threats of rape and murder.
3: You know, all the hatred is unearthed. But that also means the hatred almost keeps the campaign alive. So it has a a very, very uh, contradictory effect that isn't... I mean, it's horrific for Caroline, who is experiencing it, and for all the other people uh, who experience hate, and we all do... um, It's horrific, but it also keeps the item on the news, and that's really, really, really important, or keeps the item on the agenda. For me, the really critical thing is the way uh, institutions cannot deny what's going on, and so they instigate a form of accountability to protect themselves Um, And so what we see is a lot of the energy going into attempts to stop reputational damage, but actually what it does is is keep the campaign connected, um, keep the personal connected to the political, keep the personal connected to institutions, keep the personal experience connected to the huge scale of sexual harassment that goes on.
2: Winnie Lee is an award-winning author and activist who is researching social media and rape for an LSE PhD in the Department of Media and Communications. Her recently published novel, Dark Chapter, is a fictionalised account of events surrounding her real-life rape by a stranger as she went for a walk on a bright afternoon in a Belfast park while attending a conference. Before that life-changing incident, she had been enjoying a successful career as a film producer. Working in the film industry, were you aware of... um... The kind of macho sexual harassment that that goes on, the the Harvey Weinstein's and and, and other sort of big names that were that quite clearly exploiting women and, and um, assaulting women and and even raping women. Was that something that you were you were experiencing or aware of or
4: heard rumours about? Yeah, I mean, I was certainly aware of that macho culture. I mean, I'd never myself experienced any out, outright intimidation, and I, I wasn't myself aware of specific cases of, of I suppose, rape that had happened. I mean, I'd met Harvey Weinstein at the free Oscar party, but... It was completely, you know, he just said, hi, <laughs> welcome to my party, and then moved on, right? So it was, it was pretty much a non-event for me. Um, but uh, but for the most part, yeah, I mean, that, that culture is pervasive in, in that industry and lots of other industries. And, I mean, we're talking about an industry where, um, yeah, I mean, it's like 90% of directors are men, right? And which begs the question, okay, why, why is that even the case? You know, it's very much it's very much an industry where to get into positions that you want, you have to really be pushing yourself and promoting yourself, and you have the self-confidence to think, yeah, like, my artistic vision is valid and I deserve to be a director, and, and I think, you know, men and boys are more socialized to have that confidence than women. Uh, and also, you know, so I ran into a number of situations where I would be working with, with male directors. I did work with one or two female directors, but predominantly it was male directors. And, you know, just I would be reading scripts where the representation of women was just so objectifying and they weren't ever given a personality or anything interesting to say. Um, There's a lot of on-screen objectification of women. I certainly had to cast page three models for a few different roles where... You know, that involved bringing up the agent of the page three model and saying we're looking for a girl who kind of fits this description and like what is her breast size, right? And that was stuff I was having to do kind of just as my job. And, um, yeah, that certainly has propositioned loads of times because, it, it, you know, it's an industry where there's a lot of, I mean, even, I, mean, I wasn't even trying to be an actor, right? I was a producer, so I was behind the scenes, so it's, it's probably even worse for people who are trying to be actors, but... You know, if, if you're if you're a ac- young actress, you're quite likely very good looking and uh, you know very young, and then you're in these situations where potentially to get the role that you want, um, you're you're in an audition room where there's there's lots of older men, and not even audition rooms, you then end up at parties where there's lots of older men, there's alcohol, there's there's all these kinds of um, factors that lead you to think, okay, if I'm um, if I really want to succeed in this industry, if I want that part, then I need to be friendly to these people that have all the power, right, um, which are inevitably men. So um, and so, I didn't obviously have to deal with that because I wasn't trying to, you know, get a, a, an acting part or anything like that, but certainly as a, you know, an intern and then as an assistant, I was always having to kind of cater towards the, demand, the demands of male directors. Um... I mean that never got personally dangerous for me, but like certainly at the Cannes Film Festival, I was propositioned loads of times by much older male film executives I had just met, and there was just a sense that like, oh no, that's okay, because this is all this is all in the guise of an industry where you know we party and that's how we make our connections, and that's how you can maybe get, you know, in, in the, into the good graces of someone that could finance your next film or into the good graces of a, of a film distributor who's looking for interesting content, and they might be helpful to you. So, you know, I, I never really gave into any of those propositions, but it was just, it was pervasive. Um, I think as a, any woman working in the film industry, that behavior is pervasive, and it's, it's annoying. And that's one of the reasons I never went back in because after my own assault, because I was just like, I don't want to have to deal with such a misogynistic industry. Um, where it's, you know, men for some reason have all this power, but it's not like they're necessarily that much more talented than women. certainly as as film directors, and it's not necessarily like men are working hard or anything, they just happen to get the opportunities because it's a culture where those opportunities come more easily to men.
2: Jennifer Brown is a visiting professor of criminology and co-director of the Mannheim Center for Criminology at LSE. She is an expert on workplace sexual harassment in the British police. She told me how her research has given her a unique insight into how attitudes to women in the workplace have barely changed over the last 30 years. So Jennifer, you're a forensic psychologist. Tell me about your research into sexual harassment in the police force. I mean, it's quite a macho, male-dominated environment, so I imagine it was... Quite interesting, and there was quite a lot of data there to to analyse. Yeah, I
5: first went to work for the police in 1985. I have to say, my first day was a bit of a shock to the system. Having come from a university environment, to see kind of Pirelli calendars on the wall and being shouted at because I'd parked in the wrong place um, wasn't exactly the most warm of welcomes. And I was shown around by a woman sergeant, and I did say, don't you mind seeing all this stuff and hearing these comments because she was a very young, attractive woman. And even though she was showing a visitor around and they didn't really know who I was, made these kind of quite overt, sexist comments. And she said, what? And I got the impression she didn't notice it anymore because it was all part of the ambient environment, the wallpaper that she just accepted as the world in which she worked. So it took me a few years, I have to say. It was probably in 1990 that I decided I wanted to do a survey of sexual harassment. And it was on the back of, really, a lot of work that had gone on in Europe about recognising sexual harassment as a problem. So if you like, alongside the women's movement and recognising sexual violence, sexual violation in the workplace in the form of sexual harassment was coming to the fore. And so I did that first survey in the 1990s, which profoundly shocked the police service because they were terribly complacent. We'd had the Sex Discrimination Act in 75. They were obligated to integrate men and women into a unitary service because prior to that there'd been a a separate police women's department. And they had done nothing to actually facilitate that transition. So I had done a a, a seminar at Brams Hill, the then police college, to a group of very senior officers. And I remember vividly a lawyer who also gave a presentation saying, well, gentlemen, and I used the gender advisedly because at that time there were no senior police chief officers. Um, All I can say is if half of this has just been described by Jennifer has gone on, then just get your checkbooks out because you have no defence, no defence in law at all. Sexual harassment is illegal. Um, So fast forward to the present day, I've just completed a survey of the civilian staff who work in the police, and I'm finding similar levels of sexual harassment. So nothing's changed? So things have changed, I mean, in the sense that there have been attempts to introduce grievance procedures, um, to become more aware, Uh, and certainly um, the HMIC, Her Majesty's Inspectorate of Constabulary, have done a number of reviews over the years, and yes, so there is a greater level of awareness, there are processes and procedures, but many of the old hindrances, women are are very nervous about coming forward because it's career limiting, Um, they feel very intimidated, So the number of people who actually make formal use of the available grievance processes is minuscule.
2: Do you think that's a typical workplace then? Or or is there something peculiar about the police force where?
5: I think it's more general, I think, across the workforce. I mean, there've been recent surveys by the TUC, which suggest something like half the women in the workplace are experiencing some form of sexual harassment, but the levels of reporting are still quite low. I think in part that's due to, firstly, as I had found when I first went to work for the police, women enter the workplace and accept the environment in which they find so. We now know more of this is going on in the media, uh, certainly in the Houses of Parliament. So the degree to which you can challenge the prevailing culture is terribly difficult. And labelling it as acceptable sexual harassment is also difficult. Um, The mechanisms are still quite difficult to access and it puts your life on hold. If you make a formal complaint then the wheels grind exceeding slow. It's an incredibly divisive issue so you will find half your workmates applaud you and support you and the other half deride you for being disloyal and bringing the particular organisation into disrepute.
2: Critics of Hashtag Me Too say it's wrong to conflate mild sexual harassment with serious sexual violence. I asked Winnie Lee, as a rape survivor, if she agreed. She references Johnny, the character in her book, who is based on her real-life attacker.
4: And obviously, you know, Me Too wasn't just for direct, you know, sexual violence and sexual assault. It was also forms of sexual misconduct and it has gotten some criticism because, you know, I've spoken to rape survivors who say, like, well, I find it insulting that a woman who, you know, was tapped, you know, maybe on her hip by a boss is using hashtag Me Too when I've been raped at gunpoint, right? And, and I, I could see that under, I could see that argument. Um, but I think you know, we also need to understand that we're, we're operating in a spectrum of different kinds of misogynistic behavior. So, and it, it's a spectrum that works both ways. So, again, like I said, with Johnny and you, know, my real-life perpetrator, um, you know, he probably just didn't start by violently raping a woman, me. Um, he, I mean, he'd even said to me during the assault that there were other women, but um, most likely, you know, for that behavior to have evolved, he would have, he would have actually developed different forms of, you know, misogynistic behavior and not been called out. So on the perpetrator's point of view, uh, sorry, from the perpetrator's perspective, certainly there's a spectrum of if you start by, you know, making comments to a woman and then touching her here and there and you never get called out on, like, maybe there's a sense that you can kind of push further, and maybe that might lead to other forms of assault. So I think if behavior isn't being called out, if it's not being held accountable, then that enables worse behavior to happen, right? And then from the, uh, I guess if you want to say victim, from the victim perspective, you know I wasn't just the victim of you know that one rape. I mean I I don't know if I use the word victim in terms of the other stuff I've experienced, but I've certainly been on the receiving end of other forms of misogyny, the constant propositions when I was working in the film industry, other scenarios where you know it it was an outright violence, but there was a sense of coercion. um, And I think most women have been through some experiences like that. So. I think um, the spectrum of behaviour that we're finding, that we're learning about through Hashtag Me Too enables us to kind of connect the dots and realise that it's not just rape that we're talking about, it's not just sexual harassment in the workplace, it's a whole whole world out there of different forms of misogynistic behaviour that we have to um, be on the receiving end of sometimes.
2: Jennifer Brown's research shows that a tolerance of workplace banter can result in more extreme forms of behaviour.
5: Apologists will say low levels of sexual joking, commentary, is just the stuff of grown-up workplaces and that these are jokes and they don't mean anything. My research absolutely showed that actually not only do people mind this low-level stuff, if they are the target of it, if you are a witness, a bystander to it, you don't like it either and that if the organisation tolerates the lower-level stuff, then it is more likely to morph into the more serious. So it is a predictor that actually unwanted physical contact and unwanted physical propositioning is more likely to take place.
2: Beverly Skeggs agrees that sexual harassment is linked to a wide spectrum of misogynistic attitudes and behaviour.
3: Well, I think what's been really important is how... How the Me Too has connected sexual harassment to much, much wider issues of objectification. You know, the idea that the President's Club or, you know, lots of industries or the President <laughs> you know can just actually access women whenever they want. The fact that women's bodies are just seen to be there to be used by anybody for whatever purposes, you know. Um and that women have to subject themselves to that just to live in some cases, as we saw with you know Oxfam in Haiti. So for me it's that connection because sexual harassment is almost like the the one part of the continuum through a whole range of phenomenal it leads into, you know, sexual violence of the most extreme kinds, but it all also is just that everyday objectification. Um, where you just see women's bodies on display naked all the time and the ubiquity or the normalisation of, yeah, just exploitation of
2: women's bodies. As part of the research for her novel, Winnie Lee tried to get more of an insight into why men commit rape.
4: I... Originally started to do a bit more research into my actual real-life perpetrator, who, who was, as in the book, he was 15 years old, um, he was an Irish traveler, and he was a complete stranger. So I don't know anything about him in reality, except um, a few facts, just that he was that young, um, he was actually literate at the time, and he came from a broken family. Uh, but beyond that, I tried to do a bit more research um, into his life, and I kept on running into these problems with the police, who kept on saying, well, he's got a right to privacy which I understand. So eventually I was like, well, I'm running this as fiction anyway, so it doesn't matter. And for me, it was more about trying to understand sort of the human and the emotional experience that he was going through that had led him to behave that way. So I ended up um, meeting and interviewing a number of social workers who work with juvenile sex offenders and then also with um, forensic psychologists to try to understand, OK, what is the mentality? What is the thinking um, behind that kind of behavior, especially at such a young age? And what did you deduce from, from your interviews with them? Um, One of the most useful things um, that I learned was obviously perpetrators don't, um, they don't just go from zero to violently raping a stranger that they see. There would have been a series of kind of increasing or escalating assaults of different forms. So maybe it would have started off as something not as violent and it would have started off as something a little bit. Um, yeah, a little bit less obvious or intrusive, and then if that behavior kind of escal- is allowed to escalate because no one's being held accountable for it, then that might progress to something as violent as you know as what I unfortunately became a victim of. So so then that makes you think about like okay, what was this person's situation that we're growing up in? Um, what was the attitudes that people were having towards him and towards the way that he was acting towards towards women and girls. Um, so, yeah, that was an interesting insight. And, and it just made me realise if you know, if somebody is capable of that kind of behaviour at 15, then actually we need to start addressing these issues much earlier on in somebody's lives. So, I mean, it, it stems from kind of the attitudes towards women and girls that they're exposed to, even as children, I suppose.
2: Some critics of the hashtag MeToo movement dismiss it as a campaign dominated by privileged, glamorous women. Beverly Skeggs says there also needs to be a continued focus on the organised abuse of thousands of vulnerable young working class women and girls by predominantly Asian gangs in towns like Telford, Rotherham, Rochdale, Oxford and Newcastle.
3: I think trying to keep a focus on the Newcastle and the Rotherham cases and why nobody cared you know, well, that's not true because there's some really good people who try to keep pushing these issues forward. But again, why institutions just wanted to turn a blind eye. It was too difficult to deal with. It could compromise. And so, you know, on the one hand, we've got the, the Harvey Weinsteins of this world. And then on the other hand, we have the Rochdale cases. And I think they're very, very different. Um, but we need to keep focusing on those that cannot get the tabloid coverage for... Um, being glamorous victims. The research that I've done um, with young working class women has charted this history of their symbolic abuse in the media. How over the last 30 years we see them depicted more and more as valueless. So then we get it kind of culminates in reality TV and the attempts to. Um, represent them all as pathetic and useless and pointless and we get lots of uh, commentators talking about them as surplus populations as irrelevant or as abject or as a a drain on the nation so we see that happening and so it's therefore not surprising that all these institutions just think they're worthless and valueless too and there there isn't a politics anymore I think to understand why they're represented in such a way why why is there so much profit to be made from depicting working-class women in such a horrific way so I think the people who work in the institutions probably think well this is what they're like that's the only representations they have and of course it's powerful institutions like the police that do not want to deal with these things I think you've got to look at the institutions the people involved Their investment in being a particular sort of person. So I think what we saw from some of the transcripts, some people were much more prepared to appear to be multicultural than they were to protect the rape of young women. And that, to me, is really problematic. We have to ask why that happened.
2: I asked our three experts to imagine they were Prime Minister for the day. Which single policy change would they implement to try to change attitudes and tackle gender inequality? Jennifer Brown
5: and not come out of Europe. (laughs) And I say that not just as a joke, because actually much of our domestic legislation was reliant on European initiatives and directives. So much of the equal opportunities legislation was actually um, not exactly forced on us, but we were required to introduce it into domestic law when we had actually been dragging our feet. So we have a lot to be thankful to the European... Um, our engagement with Europe, in terms of thinking about working time directives, quality of the working environment, um, that domestically we hadn't been taking the initiative about.
3: Beverly Skeggs. For me, one single thing that would make the difference would be decent wages for decent work with decent conditions so that people didn't have to um, sell themselves in particular ways um, you know even making themselves kind of nice for a business lunch or something like that do you remember the case of the women in um, the city who had to wear high heels you know those ridiculous things that actually would uh, hamper somebody's a woman's ability to work they encourage it's just really odd so i for me if if <laughs> women didn't have to be. If women weren't assumed to be exploitable so easily, that would make a huge difference. That wouldn't make a great deal of difference to sexual harassment. So you'd have to have really powerful systems of accountability in place so that when men did do the sexual harassment that they do, they can't get away with it anymore. And what's really clear in a lot of the cases of sexual harassment, they do it because they can just get away with it and they know
4: they can. Winnie Lee There needs to be actual gender parity on on boards and companies, there needs to be actual gender parity in parliament. If these kinds of you know, what some people might call affirmative action, if, some, if these kinds of policies can be put in place, then I think at least that would have a lasting impact on, on the way a lot of things are governed. It needs to be gender equal, because I think that would better than, would reflect a better understanding of the experiences that, that men and women have to go through, um, and then decisions would be made differently.
2: I asked Jennifer Brown if she thought we are now seeing a seismic shift.
5: What's striking about the flurry of interest is if you like, it's a sine wave. When I was looking at that in the 1990s, in fact, I was reading a paper only this morning, dated 1992, alerting us to the problem of sexual harassment, saying how serious it was, saying more research needed to be done, that we needed to be interested in putting together packages of training, of procedures, and so on. So this has been cyclical. So I don't see it as a new revolution, I think it just is bringing our attention back to an existing problem that has prevailed and, for whatever reason, has uh, attracted a great deal of media interest. But it's always been there, actually. It's kind of wearying that I, look at, I looked at um, a commentary made by a woman officer who was a black woman the Metropolitan Police, to an industrial tribunal in 92. There was another one, another young black woman who took the Met to an employment tribunal in 2014. I looked at their experiences and the language and you could not have distinguished which case it was referring to.
2: Jennifer is referring here to the case of Carol Howard, a former firearms officer whose portrait was used to promote the Met during the 2012 Olympics. She left the force in 2015 with a £37,000 settlement after winning her case of racial
5: discrimination. So in terms of lessons learnt, um, it's depressing that actually successive generations of officers who might see the light, actually it's not been institutionalised. And the work I'm doing now is looking at the police culture I ask women officers to characterise the occupational culture of the police and they are still saying that it is racist and sexist and homophobic and cynical and suspicious. Um, on the one hand there are others who say yes there is progression in that there are more caring, more um, academically interested and if you like a reforming culture. But unless those elements are evident in the police force, then you're still getting very high levels of sexual harassment.
2: Beverly Skeggs is more optimistic.
3: It was um, an older feminist who was involved in sexual harassment campaigns in the late 1980s. Um, it always felt like one small step forward and two large steps back half the time. Um, and you'd win in one area and lose in another so both in terms of time and space what I think the Me Too's captured is an incredible range and scope and it's absolutely inspirational I think
2: yeah and do do you think it's um, do you think it will change for anything very much I mean people some people say oh well these things are cyclical you know things come things go and not nothing much changes or or do you think it is something that is really going to have a, a a big
3: effect it's i think this one has the best chance of having a very powerful effect more so than any others i've seen
2: winnie lee is also hopeful that for the first time women are finding strength in numbers.
4: I think it's certainly a tipping point that we're at, it, you know, a watershed moment, whatever fancy phrase you want to use. But yeah, I mean, certainly hashtag me too. Um, and it, it just the sheer number of times it was being used even within the first week. Um, just made it, people realize how prevalent these experiences are. There's certainly a trend towards more people coming forward. I mean, you saw that with hashtag Me Too, and I think a lot of it is it is kind of strength in numbers, as you mentioned before, in that sense of solidarity, and that sense of oh, I'm not, I'm not alone in this. So, I mean, you know, again, for me, it was it's incredibly isolating, and incredibly lonely to be a victim of sexual violence because you think okay i 'm going I'm going through hell, and like nobody else knows what i'm going through right and and actually in reality there are when you realize that there are so many other people out there who understand what you 're going through, then you realize actually you're not alone and and fine it doesn't doesn't mitigate things entirely, but it does make you realize that there are, there are so many of us with this experience out there. So if we were only to share it and have, I suppose, the world realize how prevalent it is, then maybe things can change. So, yeah, I think there's definitely a trend forward. It's also there's just generational differences in terms of how people talk about it. So in general, you know, younger women, partially because they're so ensconced in social media, might be more willing to, to speak and you know, speak immediately about these experiences. Whereas a lot of older women I know, it's, you know, having grown up in a culture where these stories are more repressed, um, it's it's a much longer process of of speaking publicly about it, or or a decision not to speak publicly at all, but to still engage with the stories that are out there as a reader. Do you think it's
2: all coincidental with you know Me Too happening and uh, BBC pay happening and all that kind of thing, or do you think it's part of a sort of a movement by by women to sort of basically fight more for their for their rights? Do you think that's...
4: No, I mean, it's all connected, yeah. yeah. I mean, certainly I mean, if you think about, like, a hundred years ago we literally just got the vote, you know, yeah. so that was sort of the beginning of, of a very long process of of being able to be more politically engaged and being recognised as as people that could bring something to the table politically, I suppose hashtag me too wouldn 't have happened um, if it hadn 't been for I think you know Donald Trump being president in some ways right you know the women 's March was a direct reaction to Donald Trump being elected president um, and until last year in two thousand and seventeen you start off the year with the women 's March and then there 's this growing anger <laughs> at having somebody like Trump as president um, and, you know, and then when the Harvey Weinstein case breaks in early October, then suddenly, you know, there's, there's a figure that is, you know, it's not similar to Trump, but there's some similarities, right? Um, a very powerful man who's been accused of assault multiple times, and then he has his downfall, and then there is a certain kind of, um, I think, you know, satisfaction at seeing the downfall of a... Somewhat unlikable, powerful man, right? Um, but then, you know, that was in some ways just the beginning because then there's all these other cases of other, of, of, other Hollywood, you know, men, Kevin Spacey or, you know, James Toback and lots of others. Who uh, those cases start coming up, right? Um, so uh, and then you know, hashtag Me Too trends just a few weeks after um, the Weinstein case breaks. So yeah, I think all these stories about you know, gender parity, the celebration of you know, um, 100 years of, of voting. Um, and the gender pay gap—they're all connected because there is just a realization that, kind of, as women we're sort of fed up at the stuff that we have to deal with, and the fact that it's the early—you know—it's the 21st century now, and yet there still is such a big gap between you know what what I would earn and what a man with my experience might earn if I were in a certain kind of job like that. Um, there still is such a gap between just our 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 bodily safety um, moving around the world. Um, we're still so kind of under. I sort of underestimated in terms of our skills and kind of underappreciated in terms of what we bring to a company um, that, yeah, I think there's, there's a huge amount of anger about that. Um, so I don't think it's, things might revert, I'm sure there's going to be a backlash of some form, but I mean, for me, it's always like, okay, can, can we convert all this, this outpouring of stories and, and this kind of anger, can we convert that into changes in policy in some ways?
0: This episode of LSEIQ was brought to you by Joanna Bell, Shay Forbes-Taylor, Natalie Abbott, Tom Williams and James Rattie. It was based in part on the following research. Formations of class and gender. Becoming respectable by Beverly Skeggs. Sexual harassment experienced by police staff serving in England, Wales and Scotland. A descriptive exploration of incidents, antecedents and harm by Jennifer Brown. Joanna Gussetti and Chris Fife Shaw. Art, Activism and Addressing Sexual Assault in the UK A Case Study by Winnie Lee and Dark Chapter by Winnie Lee For more episodes of this podcast and to subscribe on Apple Podcasts and SoundCloud please visit lse.ac.uk forward slash IQ or search for LSE IQ in your favourite podcast app Join us next time when we ask How do you win an argument?